I'm Lance Key, co-host of Get Inspired and Innovate, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with David Mileto. And you may remember that over the last year, I published a four-part series with David, uh, episodes 266, 271, 277, and 280. Uh, We talked about Italian heritage, life in and around Chicago, growing up in the late 50s, 60s, and early 70s. And he shared some family stories, and we talked about his artwork as well. Toward the end of the last part, episode 280, he was getting close to publishing his book. Well, his book is published now on Apple Books. It's called Images of an Idea Lost, and he also has a website, davidmaletto.com. So lots to talk about today. We're going to be focused on his book and everything in and around uh, how how it came about. So thanks for being here today. Thanks for listening. And uh, don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. You may remember that over the last year, I published a four-part series with David Mileto, episodes 266, 271, 277, and 280, 280. We talked about Italian heritage, life in and around Chicago, growing up in the late 50s, 60s, and early 70s, and he shared some family stories that we talked about. Uh, you know, we, we talked about his artwork, as well as many other things. Towards the end of the last part, episode 280, he was getting close to publishing his book. David is an incredible cook, lover of life, artist, and now an author. His book, Images of an Idea Lost, is now available on Apple Books. Here's a description of images of an idea lost. The beautiful July morning, when he first saw beauty descend the staircase, had become a distant memory. Then on a December evening, as he began to write a letter to her, the phone rang. Images of an idea lost is a true story of Linda and David's 25-year relationship. The passion and the depth of their bond was born in a threshold of a dream in the bright sunshine of that July day. But it is a story that is veiled in a mystery for it would become a tragedy that would have made the ancient Greeks cry. You can learn more about David, his book, and his artwork at davidmaletto.com. So, David, welcome back. Say hi to everyone. Good afternoon. I hope you're all doing well. Doing really well. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I want to do is let's let's kind of pick up where we left off. Uh, You've published your book, Images of an Idea Lost, and this has been an ongoing work for many years. You know, one of the things that happened over time was the many rejections you received from publishers. Uh, could you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, interesting journey, um, but somewhat similar to the one that I've had in dealing with um, curators of museums in the art world. When I did the first draft, had a friend of mine who used to be an editor at Macmillan Publishing read it, it was her idea that I should get this published. Uh, my idea was to do it as a letterpress print. Uh, so one of the suggestions that was made was before you start sending it to anyone, get feedback from readers. So I went through that. And, it, and as I was doing that, I would write to small presses, literary agents, publishing houses, and I would get back. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Um, 
it's too personal. Uh, and as one agent said to me, 15% of nothing is still nothing because the public won't buy it. And one agent uh, had said, it's too personal. They're never going to understand it. But the arrogance of the agent was the agent believed that she understood it, but no one else would, which no. was amazing to me. After doing this for seven years, I probably wrote to well over 60 places. Um, it got to be where enough is enough. I mean, you keep telling me, I, I had a senior editor at one of the major houses out of New York who found it inspirational, but came back and said to me, but how would I market this? And when I read his letter, I thought, well, you know how to market Romeo and Juliet, Wuthering Heights. There was the movie in the 90s, uh, Shakespeare in Love, or no, uh, uh, whatever it was. Yeah, Shakespeare in Love. I think that was the name of it. You could figure out how to market that, but you can't figure out how to market this. Yet this story, this book has an element that none of those have. This didn't come out of my imagination. This actually happened. When somebody sits and reads this, they are listening to the two of us interact. And so it just got to where, you know, it was like, you're, you're driving me crazy and I've had enough of this. So I stopped dealing with them. Yeah, that's, that's rough. And I know you, you've saved all those letters. So it's a, uh, it's, it's pretty wild. They, uh, you know, when you were close to completing the book and it looked like it was almost going to be published, it seemed like something else would interfere. And part of this had to do with the formatting of the book, which is what you're talking about. This, this idea of uh, how you wanted it to look and feel and read and so forth. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the frustrations of that formatting in this electronic digital world? Yeah, I was, God love technology, folks. I was amazed that the way, again, going back to this was laid out as a letterpress print. Being an old time printmaker, the way the words look on the page was vital. I built a visual relationship to this thing. So the way it looks is the way it has to stay. That's the way it has to be published. And I ran into a problem with a number of places where their technology simply wouldn't take it. With Apple, I had to deal with them three times in, until, until it got through. Um, there are other places I plan on dealing with in the coming weeks, hopefully I won't have similar problem. But again, the frustration just built of where the, the irony of dealing with Apple was I was actually talking to, to somebody who worked there. We did a screen share. She looked at it and even agreed with me. She said, you're right. She said, this has to remain fixed because when it went to Amazon, Amazon took it and everything became indented to the left. And it was like, you, this looks terrible. That is not how this is supposed to look. So it was like, you're getting me to throw up my hands again, folks. And it, and you went to others too, the ones that, you know, people talk about using. So it wasn't, it's like a, it was like kind of like a frustrating little disease that was going around where, yeah, we can get it done. And then, nope. <laughs> just, just tried one of them a week ago to add to 
not only of it being an apple, but of having it someplace else. I went to another one a couple of weeks ago that I had tried before and it just, they won't take it. And just to kind of clarify things, there's, there's a term for this. I think he used it, which was the, in the formatting, um, that used the term fixed. There's fixed and flowable. And it, it, this all has to do with the way they want you to be able to see it, be it on um, a PC or your laptop or your phone. So if it's flowable, it lets them move the images around. So when you're looking at a, no, a news story, if it's fixed, they're, they're, you're, you're, you're structured with that look. You're stu- you're, it, it, that's permanent. Whereas if it's flowable, it's like, okay, let's get the paragraph on this page and we'll get this paragraph on that page and it doesn't matter. Gotcha. So, yeah, so now the book is published on Apple books and I gotta, I gotta ask you this. I mean, it, that had to be a cool feeling. I mean, what, what was it like when you first realized that your words and your story were now available for others to read? I, I am more taken, not so much that Apple finally said yes, but I'm, I'm more intrigued with what the public will say about it. Um, so the fact that it's there, that it can be accessed, that people can react to it, um, has, has me more interested than, than I think anything else. That's cool. That's, uh, but I, I know that, uh, um, this has been a big deal moving through all this. And so it's, it's cool that it's, it's now up there. And with the frustrations that you had to deal with, why didn't, why didn't you give up? You know, that's really a good question. I'm surprised no one has ever asked me that before. Um, because either way, whether we're talking about what we talked about in our other conversations of La, the La Piazza Mia work or, or this, a lot of it has to do with belief in it, not what society is doing with it, not what the art world's doing with it, not what the publishing world is doing, or in this case, not doing with it. Um, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll focus in on, on the book. I believe in that story. I know that story communicates with people. I've had way too many women come to me after they've read it in tears of where they've told me their husband sees them sitting on the, on the couch, tears come going, honey, what's wrong? Is did, you know, what's, what's the matter? And, and now she has to try to explain what she's just read. But in a sense, it's not that, I, I, that I've given up, but I have put it away. I mean, after those seven years of dealing with the publishing world and getting this, the, this contradiction of it's, it's terrific, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but nobody's going to buy it. Therefore, we're not going to spend $5 to get it into Barnes and Noble because we'll never even get a buck back. So we're not going to publish it. You now have self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You don't publish it. Obviously, no one's going to buy it. I put it away. And I put it away for two reasons. One, I got tired of dealing with them. And two, it's a, it's a very difficult story for me to work with. Um, as, as a friend of mine had once said, he said, if, if this receives the acclaim that he believes it should, that it deserves, he said, the problem I'm going to have is when somebody reviews it, they're going to be reviewing a book. But when you read the review, they're basically reviewing your life. So 
when the frustration got to, to the heights that it did, and I said, that's it, I'm putting, you, I'm putting it in a, in a drawer. I, I just sort of had, had enough with this. I guess the cruel irony is if it had not been for you coming to me with this idea for doing the, the podcast, I don't think I ever would have had the thought of when I came to you and said, okay, if I can get it published, can we link it to the podcast? Which that's what made me bring it back out. Because again, it's not a disbelief in the work. That's the furthest thing from this. It was more the frustration of dealing with how do you break down the barriers? How do you get that wall to come, come down? That, that was, so again, for, for me, the reason why I've never stopped with any of this stuff is I believe in the work. I know the work has power to it. That I'm certain of. Gotcha. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about what, you know, some of the ways it looks, all right, because we have a unique cover. The images of an idea lost has a unique cover, you know, and it, it, could you describe what the reader is seeing? Okay. The cover for me is actually the most difficult part of this. Going back to my beginning idea of the letterpress, the letterpress didn't have a cover. The letterpress would have been the pages with a blank piece of Reeves BFK paper on it, which is what I was going to use to print it. And then it would have had a very beautiful material that I would have wrapped it in with a, with a white ribbon. That was the print. When it came to dealing with now this structure known as a book, what do I put on the cover? It was interesting that a photographer friend of mine, superb photographer, after he read it, called me. And the first thing he said was, well, how do I say thank you for wrecking my day? And then said, may I make a couple of suggestions? And I said, sure. He said, do me a favor, lose the photographs of her. There were 14 of them. And I went, really, why? And he said, let the reader visualize her. Don't show her to us. If anybody else would have said that to me, I would have walked away from it. But I have a, a photographer telling me to lose photographs. That carried weight. I sat down, I looked at, I went through the manuscript and I went, he's right. I took them all out. So, okay, I now have to take that element away. What do you put on the cover? I tried colors, I tried shapes, I tried textures, none of it worked. I went through photographs that I have of the areas that we traveled in. And I went, no, none of these are any good. One idea that I found interesting, I don't know if the public would, because I'm not the Beatles. The Beatles could publish, could, could, could bring out an album known as the White Album, and everybody thinks it's kind of cool because it's the Beatles. Right. I'm not them. I don't care. I don't have that kind of weight. Because one of the ideas I had that I liked was to leave the cover white, just the title and my name. From a couple of sources, it was like, they may see that as, huh? <laughs> and so I, would, I went back and played with ideas. And what I came up with is, God love her, she had more talent in two hands than most people have in their entire body. 
the one thing she never pursued was her dancing. I photographed her, which became the Prince Lynad's dance. I went into those photographs and I've got a photograph of her, but you can't see her face. And I went, I can get my cake and eat it too. I can put her out there, but you don't know what she looks. Well, you know what she looks like from the neck down. You know what, what kind of figure she had, but you can't see the face. That's how I came up with the cover. Gotcha. Very interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting because that's, it, it's unique. And uh, the idea that uh, the whole idea, going back to your friend talking about letting the reader determine um, how she looked and so forth like that and who she was. Uh, it, so let's talk about your story. You know, we got to, I got to ask you, who, who was Linda? Okay. I'm going to take a deep breath and all I can do is bear with me. Um, I've never, I've never dealt with this question in my life. Um, as your audience pretty much I can figure from what we've said so far, this is not a happy story. Um, when I lost her the first time, there was a doctor who asked me, he said, okay, David, the floor is yours. Talk to me, tell me. And I couldn't get a word out. And he said to me, he said, you're hurt so deep, you can't even talk about this. And I never did. I didn't, I didn't say a word. Nobody knew the story. No one knew anything until she died. And then it was, you couldn't shut me up. But what I never talked about was your question. About a half an hour before you contacted me today, I listened to her voice. I have her on tape. And I have thought about this question of yours for what's it been now, like two weeks? And I don't know how to explain to anybody what it was like to hold 9th Street in my hands, but then to have to live without it. One of the things in the doing of the book, the book in, 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 a, in a way for me has almost been a penance. What in the doing of it, it enabled me to see things I could never see when she was alive because my anger got in the way. And so when I looked at this and said, how do I answer this? I started thinking of this. It was a summer afternoon. We were at her parents' house. We were kind of bushed from walking around and stuff. When we came into her house, she went up to her room to lay down. I laid down on the couch. I don't know how much time went by. All of a sudden, I feel her poking me in the shoulder. Mileto, wake up. Mileto, wake up. And I went, yeah, love what? And she proceeded to tell me about this dream she had had. And as she was talking about it, I took my hand and I put it over her mouth. She got a little startled and she went, wow. And I went, and then what we did, and she, I finished the dream. And she looked at me and she said, you, had, you were having the same dream. I said, how else would I know what you were dreaming? Um, later on, uh, I was back in Texas and I was in my room by myself, I have no witness to this, so it's just me. Sorry, Perry Mason, I, 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 have, no, I have no one else I could rely on for my alibi. Um, I was in the room, doors closed, windows are closed, 
lights on one, you know, simple little light. I'm leaning up against the windows to my left is my bed. And on the wall we had, um, I had, I, 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 I hope the police aren't listening. I had a um, shower curtain that I had stolen from the Holiday Inn <laughs> hanging on the wall. Nice. Um, and there was a large space on the wall that was barren. And I happened to look and there was a shadow that looked just like a woman's body in motion. And I went, I, I walked around the room trying to find out where the shadow was coming from and I couldn't find anything that could be causing it. All of a sudden I froze and went, oh my God, I think I know what this is. Opened the door, ran down the hall, got on the phone, called her up, roommate answers. I said, is Lynn there? She said, yes, put her on the phone. She gets on the phone, she's, what's wrong? And I said, do me a favor, just tell me what you were doing like right now. And she said, oh, I was in the living room. I said, anybody in there with it? No, just me. Any lights on? She said, well, no, just the spotlight that I had shining on me because I was dancing and it was throwing my shadows all over the wall. And I went, okay, thank you. I'll talk to you about this later. See ya. I went back to the room. Um, if you look at our story, it is this vast array of grays. If people look at it only from a black and white perspective, they're not going to see it. You know, it kind of reminds me of when the great Louis Armstrong was asked by a woman, what's jazz? And he said to her, ma'am, if you don't get it, I can't explain it. The last time I was with her, I, we had not seen each other for five years. What we could do in that, and during that week, the levels that we could touch, I've never been able to get anywhere near that with anyone else. The way we could communicate with one another, the way we could touch one another just by looking at each other was extraordinary. She was without doubt the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Without her, the work La Piazza Mia never happens. And I know that means that God said, sorry, you can't have both you're gonna to have to lose her to gain this. And I've, over the years, I have looked at the enormity of La Piazza Mia. I've just looked at the breadth of that. I mean, the idea that I got in Pistoia, Italy on that October morning, I worked on for 30 years. And I've always kind of looked at that and said, yeah, cause you're trying, you're, somehow you're trying to fill that void because I've, the one thing that I've never been able to understand that I will never be able to understand because I can't talk to her about it anymore. And God knows I had chances and I didn't do them because I emotionally couldn't do them. I emotionally couldn't do what I'm doing right now when she was breathing. I just, I just didn't have it in me to, to, to face that. But the thing that became so clear was I've never understood 
the why to this. Why did it break down like this? Why did I end up living my life without her? I've always said when it comes to Lynn, the weight that she had to carry throughout her life had to have been enormous. But when it comes to, to who she was, um, there just simply is no one who was more vital to the evolution of my life than her. Very powerful. Very powerful. The, uh, you know, your idea for your book, uh, it, it's, it's not like a lot of books. All right. It's, it's, um, in, in it's design and format. And, and so what I want to kind of get you to talk about is where did the idea for the way you put the book together come from? I mean, your book is closer to an artist book or a work of art than a regular book. You've kind of alluded to this earlier. It, it is visually driven. Can you talk about how you created it? I guess continue from where I just was. I know people don't want to tell you this, but some wounds don't heal. And that's how you end up getting pieces of music, movies, books, you name it, because you somehow have to work that stuff out. And it doesn't mean, I, I once heard a general uh, talking about the Vietnam War who said, I know that it's over, but that doesn't mean that it's ended because that man's got to live with it in his head. And as she was dying, I was treated rather poorly by a, lot of, by a number of people surrounding it and it made me really angry and what made me angry was there is a story here that is being denied and it may be the most vital story to her life and to mine and after her death I got on a plane to visit some friends in in Dallas and I was in one of my favorite parts of of, of, the, of the city um, I, and, and, and I was walking around Lakeside Park, which is in Turtle Creek area, for those of you who know Dallas. And as I was walking around, I had this idea, tell the story. And the thing that hit me was, okay, I got a problem. I'm not a writer. I'm visual. So how do I tell the story? I went back to John and Mary Jones and we were talking that night over dinner and I told them the idea and they, they liked the idea a lot. So the next day I took my notebook and I went back and I was walking around and I started making notes and I went, okay, what do I have? I have got 200 perfumed letters from her. I have my writings and I have a curse, a terrible curse of a memory. I can remember our last week together and I know, and I know how this story ends. So I began with, okay, should the pages be white? Should the pages be color? I had the idea of, okay, if you've got X amount of chapters, would you take primaries? Would you take the primary colors for each, say, for each chapter, each act, whatever, and then work with the shades of that for each page. What became clear to me was way too busy, way too much stuff. Clean off the table. You got, you got, you got to throw all this stuff out, 
look at the table blank. Now, what is it that you see? What's the most important thing? Her voice. Don't get in the way of it. When I came back to Chicago, I came down into the studio and literally right behind where I'm sitting is a box that has her letters in it. It took me about a week to finally open that box up. And what I did is this, this area, which is probably 30 by 20 feet, I guess, something like that, sound right, um, was just covered with sheets of paper where I was just taking bits and pieces from her letters. I didn't alter a word. In fact, at times what I would do is I would listen to Sinatra for phrasing. I would listen to the way the man could bring the song across. So that if you're sitting in the back row listening to him, you still feel like he's singing to you. And it's all because of the way the man could phrase. He'd tell you that. So it was, I would start taking this stuff out and, and there was something that was rather fascinating that, that happened. Y'all do with this what you will. What I'm gonna tell you as Sergeant Joe Friday would say, just the facts, ma'am. And that's what I'm about to give you. I was angry. I was angry and I was hurt. I was dealing with the pain and the loss of what I never dealt with when I lost her when I was 20 years old, 22, whatever the hell it was. I would get mad. Remember I mentioned that her letters are perfumed. When I would get angry, and it was like, okay, I'm done with this letter. I could put you away. And I would go back into the box to take a letter out. The perfume was gone. Now, what I would do to calm me down was, David, I'd shut the studio down. I'd get, I'd get out of here. And then I'd come back, maybe later that day, maybe the next day. When I came back, and I come back in not angry, the perfume was back. You do with it what you want. All I know is that's what happened. So what I did is the first act is her voice. It is about a, like a 90-page soliloquy. This thing is only 138 pages long. So for that first act, you're going to hear her and only her. No editing. It's her. I mean, it could be one sentence. It could be a paragraph. I made the pages look like prose. So it looks like the way she wrote was a poet. Some, some are, are maybe a little more visually playful. Like there's one page that looks like a chalice. Um, act two, I took my writings that I did over the years about us. It became act two. So when you're into act two, you're reading Again, what looks like prose, only it's a lot longer and we've changed voices. It's gone from her voice to my voice. So you need to, you need to remember that what you're going to listen to is first person. This whole thing is in first person. Um, except for where I do, well, I guess you could say first person even where I'm doing narration because there's some narrating in there. I needed it to help move the story. Um, act three is the last time we were together. It, it, goes, it, it spans a week. Act four is the ending. 
Now, what happened during this process was there was a friend of mine who helped me bring this into the computer world because I, did, I didn't have a, I didn't own a computer until 2011. That's a whole nother story. And so we would go and he would type everything in and afterwards we'd go get a pizza, have some wine, we'd come back and we'd continue talking about the story. He tried to help me get through this emotionally. And one night we were talking about the story and I told him, I said, this story needs to be read twice. Okay, why? I said, the reader needs to get to the ending knows how this ends, go back and reread act one to get the power of what it is that she lost, that, that she gave up. And he said, you could do that. And I said, how? He said, write it as an epic. He said, take something from the back, put it in the front. So I went and I now, now I'm gonna play with time of where I went to the third act. I went to that last week when we were together and that's how this story begins. It begins with the night I sat down, again, do with this what you want. She had never seen the Prince Lanad's dance and I had just re-photographed them. And I came up with the thought, David, write her a letter, send them to her. And I, I figured I'd send them to a friend of hers who I knew. I've got the letter written. It's a Sunday night at 6 p.m. I am sitting at the same desk I'm sitting at now. And I typed literally, ciao, Linda, may I talk with you? And the phone rang. Do I need to tell anybody who was on the other end of that phone? Not only was it her, she was 25 minutes away from me. She was in the city of Chicago. That's how the book began. It begins with taking the beginning of act three, bringing it into the front and letting that then move you through the different time periods. And so what you get is you get the story, but it visually is move, is what, what is the moving force here is the visual with it. I mean, it's like I had people who would read it when I was working on it in the library the ending. So the ending in act four has to do with someone who was reading this and she said to me, David, okay, you're missing a part. And I said, what? She said, how did you feel after she died? You don't tell us. That got you that. The last three pages came about because a woman who read it said to me, to me, the most insane thing I've been told was, well, why don't you rewrite your letters to her? So we have her and you. And I said, are you out of your mind? How the hell do you write a love letter to somebody who's dead? And why would you want to do that? The last three pages actually come out of that idea of where I sat down and wrote what I wrote. But again, this is story got driven from a visual structure. I think that's so cool because that's that's what makes it so unique is that it's uh, it it's you know your artist your visual artist mind is uh, writing the story and making it and producing it and that's uh, it's 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 a, just a unique way of doing it. Uh, you know who's who's the audience for your book and why do you think so? I can, okay, I can I can do it this I can say it this way. 
the audience I have seen is women from the age of 17 to probably the mid late twenties. They're going to want to be act one. They're going to want to be her. After that, they're going to need someone in their, maybe from thirties into their fifties, maybe whatever that might be able to give them greater insight into this. There is one thing that I need to add that is probably the most powerful statement I can make about this, and it's not coming from me in regards to the audience. I met a gentleman, wonderful guy. He was the curator for the Contemporary Art Museum in Chicago. And we kept in contact over the years. Um, too bad he left Chicago and went to Washington DC because I lost out on a show, but that's neither here nor there. Last January, last January 2nd, I opened up my emails. I had not spoken to Ira since 19, probably 1994 or so. And I had forgotten that I had sent him a copy of the first draft. So I opened up my emails and I read the following note. David, I've been rereading The White Rose. That was its original title, which you kindly gave me in 1993. My wife is dying of Alzheimer's and I wish I could find words for her <clears throat> as loving and as beautiful as yours for Linda. My best to you. That's the kind of impact that story can have. It's a power, yes, powerful, heart-wrenching, hitting your heart, period. Yeah, uh, without giving away the ending, or you can give away the ending, I, um, can you share a little bit about you and Linda and Images of an Idea Lost? Kind of wrap it all up. Two people who walked around on this earth carrying a lot of pain. And the reason why they carried so much pain is the incredible love they had for each other. A dear friend of mine had said to me one day, Mr. Allen was the head of the art uh, photography department at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And for years, I always listened to him because I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sitting, I'm listening to somebody who's brilliant. It's called Shut Up and Listen. I called him this one day and we started talking. I said, Mr. Allen, I said, I need to tell you a story. And for 45 minutes, the man didn't say a word. And when I got done, he said, the two of you were never more alive than when you were together but you took each other for granted. It, the, the power that we had with each other, the connection that we had each other, as I said earlier, I've, I've just never encountered, I had, I've had women walk up to me and say, wow, you know, I got a great marriage, but what was it like to feel like that for somebody? And the tragedy is, is we let it go. 
Um, and I can't tell you why. I, I cannot to this day tell you why what happened happened. It makes absolutely no sense. I have walked around with a pain that, as I said, some wounds don't heal. There are people who, when I did the book, had said, so did it give you closure? And I just laughed. I said, no, it made it worse. And they went, why? I said, because it, it, it enabled me to see things that I wouldn't allow myself to see when she was living. And what I can see now, the most important thing that I see now is that we needed to find a way to heal each other. It had nothing to do with getting married, living together, nothing to do with that crap. It's almost irrelevant. There was a wound here that needed to be healed and I can't heal it. There is no number, there is no address I can write to or call and say, love, um, we need to talk. We came close one night, but her fear stopped it. And when Linda would get scared, I, would, I should have pushed and didn't. That last week when we were together, I wanted to bring her to the studio. I wanted to take her letters. I didn't, didn't want us to reread the damn things. I just wanted to take the box, put it on the floor, the two of us sit there and talk. And she looked at me and she said, please, Mileto, I couldn't handle it. And so I didn't. And to this day, I kick myself in the butt for that because it might have started to open up what needed to be opened up so we could look at this and find a way to heal us. So that at the end of this story, when David gets mad because he hears something that ticked him off, maybe stupid doesn't write stupid letter and it doesn't get sent because that would have gotten taken care of, but it, it didn't. The last week, this is, this is act three. Act three emotionally, mentally felt like the beginning. I mean, I, I can in, in act three on Tuesday, on Tuesday night, when we're walking down Michigan Avenue, I believe this is in the book, I looked at her and I, I just said, this feels right. You standing next to me feel this makes sense. All of it's like, right, yeah, I, I got this. You not there doesn't make sense to me. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand why you're not here. You've got two people who, who were given something absolutely gorgeous and they messed it up. And before anybody gets mad at her or gets mad at me, which you're free to do, I don't care. I'm a big boy, I got a strong back. There isn't anything anybody can say that I haven't heard. Remember one thing, she had to live with it and I had to live with it. Because what I've always fought against for people who ridicule me, two weeks ago, I had a Good friend of mine, look at me and say, why the hell do you care? Because I know what 9th Street was. I know what we held in our hands. And I also know what we ended up having to live with. Um, I was told by her sister-in-law that when Linda was in her hospital room dying, that the most important, the best time of her life, I believe was how she put it, the best time of her life was 25 years ago. And her sister-in-law said, 
David, I thought she was like talking about her girlfriends or something. And I said, really? Because the sister-in-law didn't know me. I wasn't in the picture when she came around. I said, do this. Take 25, subtract it from 93, and what do you get? She said, 1968. I said, she could have only meant one thing. And a friend of mine had said, you notice she said it to somebody who wouldn't know that. She didn't have to explain. She didn't, it let her say something that she couldn't say to anybody else because then they'd say, why don't you want to see him? In act three, there is a scene. Tuesday night, we had just come back from dinner and she looks, we're sitting in the, in the, in the lobby and she asks me, who do you think is going to die first? Now that threw me because we were like 33, 32 years old. And then she said, would you want to be there? And I said, oh God, yeah. And she said, I don't think I could handle it. She didn't, she got to say something without having to handle it. She got to say something without having to explain to anybody what it meant. I get mad when I look at the publishing world and sit there and go, I, you know, I, you know, I get it with all of those other stories, but this has got a dimension to it that none of them got. I'm, you know, at, at, at the end of the movie Shakespeare, at the end of Romeo and Juliet, the play, where Shakespeare said, there has not been a tale of more woe. Well, guess what, Jack? I got one for you. And it's real. That's what gives it a dimension, a depth to it that those don't have. If, if the movie, A Shakespeare in Love, where the queen says, can a play really show the beauty and depth or whatever of love, however she phrases it, this one shows you the complexity of the human being. This sits there and says, if you, if you give this woman act one, if you say that's true, that's real, that's a part of her soul, it's a part of her heart, why in God's name did she let it go? And why didn't he try harder to keep her? Whatever, I mean, you can beat me up every which way you want. I think I'm done. Well, you got uh, you got our attention. That's for sure. The, you, you, um, if the reader goes to your website, which is davidmaletto.com, they'll find some unique images. Could you share what's there? And and part of it, you know, you've been referring to Lenad's dance and so forth, and that's that's there as well. Yeah the uh, the first one is a series of prints called the Portrait of Veronica. Um, it was, I got the idea of, I wanted to do them as a photo litho. I wanted to, to photograph her and then do photo litho out of it. One day I was in the Apple bookstore. I overheard um, someone who worked there talking to a customer about this thing they call the one-to-one -one, where they will teach you how to do stuff. And I went, ah, I got a thought. So I signed up for it. It was an incredible deal. And when I was working on it, I said, uh, you know, you know, I have Photoshop on here. Could we use it? I've heard so much about this thing. And they said, sure, why not? That was my introduction for how to Photoshop, even though it was funny. I did, the, I did that work in the Apple store. Again, I didn't own a computer yet. 
so I'd have all these people walking around watching me as I was working on that. And it was funny, there were some people who worked at Apple, they were photographers. And, and, and Russ came up to me one day and he said, uh, David, yeah, you do know that is not the reason why Photoshop was created. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, I have no idea, but this is how I'm learning how this thing works. The thing that comes after that is um, a stainless steel sculpture called the Torn Letter. I actually did it at the same time I did the portrait of Veronica. They are related. Um, it is to be enlarged, maybe after I'm dead, um, to 11 feet by 26 feet. It uh, is like a square room, not like it is, a square room that you would then walk into. Um, what comes after that is La Piazza Mia. Interestingly enough, there, the only visual on that is a painting that I did, it came from it, and I added one of the objects from it. Um, but most of it, is, there is a letter there from a, a good friend of mine who also happened to be a therapist. And I have to admit, I never thought a therapist would write what she wrote about me. I, crazy, I get, out of his mind, I get, but what she said was like, wow, really? Um, there are two notes I added. One is from um, Dr. Robert Wilson, who was the uh, first director of the Fermi lab. He also worked with Enrico Fermi on the splitting of the atom. It's a note that he wrote to me about wanting to see the work. And there is another note there from the great art historian, Catherine Koo. Um, she was friends with Picasso and Matisse. Um, and that's a note from her to me in regards to my work and us getting together and, and meeting. Um, there are some drawings I did. There are some sculptures that I did. There is a series of photographs that I did. I, it's, it's entitled One Afternoon of a friend of mine who was opening up his own beauty parlor. He used to cut my hair for years and he was opening up a new place and he said, David, could you do me a favor? I'm gonna do this woman's head, could you cut it for me? Or could you shoot it for me as I'm cutting it? And I said, Ramo, I don't do this stuff. There are people who do that kind of photography work. He said, David, please. I went, okay, but whatever you get, you can't complain. Um, and so I got there and he said, okay, I want you to photograph her as I'm doing it. And then I'm gonna comb it out and fix it and everything. And I want you to then do headshots. All right. So. We went outside after her hair was all done. She looked absolutely gorgeous. Um, we went outside and I started photographing and you can do with the photographs what you want. The last thing that you see is uh, Lynette's dance. Those are the prints that I did of her. Um, recently I thought of, I had this wonderful idea and the best way I can explain it is for those of you who saw, who have seen the original Magnificent Seven, there is a scene with Steve McQueen where he's about to give his gun to Eli Wallach and he tells him, he said, you know, I knew a man in Nevada who told me that one day he decided to take off all of his clothes and jump into a cactus. And I asked him why, why? and he said, because it seemed to be a good idea at the time. Well, it seemed to be a good idea at the time to listen to her tape to see if I could get a snippet of it and put it on the page of Lynad's dance. Uh, let's just say it wasn't a good idea. <laughs> um, so I, th I think, I think I've covered them all. I think that's it. Very strong. And it's the images, you know, for listeners, if you go there, you'll see the, um, 
everything. There's an initial video that you watch that takes you through oh, right. through the story, and uh, it's really cool. And um, with with music in the background, and it's a uh, it's it's all very the imagery and the the um, the artwork involved just uh, very powerful. And you you've heard David's passion for the story, and uh, and you'll feel it as you as you go through his pages in the uh, in the website. So cool. Thanks for sharing that, David. Um, you know. If someone wanted to reach out to you, where would you send them? Excuse me, I was thinking of a joke. Um, uh, they could go, they could contact me at dgmuletto at gmail.com. Um, if they wanted to talk to me, they could call me uh, at 847-867-1876. At um, I would say leave a message because I don't answer numbers I don't know. Um, and I believe if they go to the website, uh, there is there there's the email address of David TWR at Hotmail. So if they wanted to drop me an email at that one, they could do that too. Excellent, and and that information will be in the show notes, so they'll be able to uh, reach out and connect with you. So good stuff, D David. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Your story, images of an idea lost, will will pull at the hearts of the readers. Your unique telling of your 25 year relationship with Linda will make the reader feel like. She knew both of you. Thank you for taking the time to share your story and your book. Um, Images of an Idea Lost is now available on Apple Books, and, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And uh, But you can also find that link by going to David's website at davidmaletto.com or going to Apple Books, you know, the Apple Book Store and um, looking up David Maletto. Um, wish you the best in all you do. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. You take care. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends. Hey!